0: From the nation's capital, this is DC Public Safety. I'm your host, Leonard Sipes. Ladies and gentlemen, the program title today, Pretrial Justice Reform. We have two. Experts with us today: Lori Evil. She is a correctional program specialist for the National Institute of Corrections. www.nicic.gov. Jim Sawyer, Executive Director, National Association of Pretrial Services Agencies. www.napsa.org. Lori and Jim, welcome to DC Public Safety. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Did I get your name correct? You did. Oh, Thank then you. I, I I I didn't say <laughs> Evil for e- Evil. No. Okay. Evil. but I will. I will but throughout the course of the program, my friends in New York City will tell me that you screwed it up once again. All right, pretrial. This is a really interesting concept. I've been, I get newspaper services every day, and they come to me, and every day has some sort of story as to why this person who was arrested and released, who went out and did something despicable, and people are up in arms, the fact that he was not incarcerated. So the first thing we're going to discuss... Right out of the box is what is pretrial and the presumption of innocence? Go ahead, mm-hmm. Lori.
1: So pretrial is a phase in a case. It is the phase in a legal case that comes after a person has been arrested, um, often pending trial. And so the questions that often come or are in the public's view is what do we? How do we manage a defendant while they are waiting a trial, while they are presumptively innocent, while they still have uh, constitutional rights to due process and equal protection? At the same time, how do we balance community safety? And so, I think that those are the issues that people in criminal justice um, who we look at uh, this issue very closely to help advise people at the national, state, and local levels are really looking at is the balance between um, people's rights in the pretrial phase and how do we keep the community reasonably safe while the person is pending trial.
0: But they are innocent, that's Until proven guilty, I mean, whether we like it or not, people brought into the pretrial system generally speaking have a presumption of release, do they not, unless the system says this person failed on pretrial previously or failed on parole and probation or is a danger to the community? Jim, the average person who is not part of the criminal justice system again wants to know why we 're releasing
2: this guy. he was just arrested five hours ago. What is he doing back on the street? Well, again, it comes right back down to be that presumption of innocence. I mean, you are accused of a crime. You've not been found guilty of a crime. You have a right to liberty. Um, and I think there's a number of court cases out there that talk to that very point. You have a right to liberty in pretrial. Um, until that point where you're adjudicated, found guilty, sent to a correctional facility, you have a right to liberty. And that's what our folks try to do while balancing, as Lori said, the community safety and those concerns that are there.
0: Is that the most common question you would get? Because you just said the person's not guilty. And I, as a person living in that neighborhood, said, no, wait a minute. I saw the person do this. What do you mean he's not guilty? I saw him beat up that young boy. Um, what do you mean he's not guilty? I saw him do it. And five hours later, he's back on the street. That threatens me. I feel fearful. Why did you release him? And my response is going to be there is a presumption of release unless the person poses a clear and present danger to the community or has failed on some sort of community supervision previously, and that person will look at me like I'm crazy.
1: Well, and I think that that is precisely the issues that we face um, on a national level as the issue of pretrial justice and pretrial reform are really much uh, more prevalent in conversation. Um, I think that one of the things that we are recognizing is that our laws do allow for people to uh, be t- detained by way of our decisions. And so we're looking much more carefully at uh, being able to assess those people who are in pretrial status of who can be safely released during the pretrial phase, meaning those who have the probability of um, showing up for court, as you said, mm-hmm. and not committing subsequent rearrest. The good news in pretrial is that that is about 70% of the cases or more that really do pose low risk to not appear at court and public safety. And I think that that is the community, uh, what the community really. Uh, would help them to if they understood that
0: better. So when we're talking about reform, Jim, uh, what are we talking about?
2: Uh, What's the reform in pretrial? Well, we're talking about creating, really looking at the system of pretrial justice um, and not just an agency. We're talking about everything from first contact with law enforcement to public defense or defense bar, uh, the prosecutor, the judge, the courtroom. Everybody that becomes part of it, it's not – it's no longer just getting arrested and then going and visiting your friendly pretrial services officer and then moving through the system that way. It's really taking a holistic approach Mm -hmm. and realizing that those folks, other folks around the system are really – the key components of that system. But the key components of what? What I hear is that
0: too many people are held in jails on a pretrial basis where they could be safely released to the community. Uh, and that's costing the criminal justice system and taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars over time. So the economic argument seems to be powering a lot of the discussion on reform within the criminal justice system because our critics say we simply cost too much. And and we're not terribly effective so isn't that the heart and soul of what we're talking about here why do we lock up so many people in jails um and how, the the fact that they could probably be released without harming or threatening public mm-hmm.
2: safety and they probably will show up to draw if well, they are released and I, I think Lori made that point earlier i mean there's there's some great ways to to protect the community while you're still being released one is through supervision another is if you have a situation where you don't believe somebody should be released then use preventative detention Mm statutes. it's not a matter of get out of jail free card for everybody that comes into the system it's really managing that case that person um and and their ability to reappear in court and not Reoffend and to not be a danger to the to the community.
0: Well, our sister agency, Pretrial Services Division, uh, here in the District of Columbia, um, their return rate is phenomenal. Um, the rate of being on community supervision before your trial and not committing additional crimes is phenomenal. So our pre-trial services agency here in the, for the District of Columbia is proof that done right, you can release the g- great majority of individuals who are caught up in the criminal justice system. Again, if you're extremely violent, if you're you know showing signs of, of strong mental illness, if you have a history of not complying with community supervision agencies, that's different. We're talking about everybody else but what we are talking about are probably 70 to 80% of people arrested right that's right
1: you know the release rates the outcomes for dc pretrial services is not an accident right there are there is a foundation in which this agency has been built on and i think that that is one of the things at the National Institute of Corrections that we are really trying to uh, help people to understand is that you can have some predictability of your pretrial outcomes if you're deliberate about four very specific uh, functions within your system and one is that you have a law that allows you to uh, preventatively detain those pretrial defendants whom you think are simply too risky to release during pretrial and that you have no set of conditions that can reasonably assure uh, public safety as well as court appearances. And also this law does not allow you to detain people simply because they cannot meet the money bail condition of release. So one, the law. We're being very deliberate about who is in custody and who can be released. The the second piece that, that we're saying agencies' uh, systems need to look at is that they do build uh, a system based on a set of criminal justice system elements that help to make decisions um, during the pretrial stage. So as Jim mentioned, that it is... Uh, speedy prosecutorial review, that there is a defense attorney present, um, that there's a meaningful initial appearance, that that decisions are being uh, informed by risk assessment. Um, and that... Uh, we are using an evidence, the empirical evidence, to help inform our decisions. And I think, lastly, and I think most importantly, is that these things are placed within an organization that understands the principles of pretrial release. Mm -hmm. Those very things that we have discussed earlier. And so it's equally important that we build the agency that can support these. And that's precisely what D.C. pretrial has done.
0: The 14 years when I was with the Maryland Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services, which included law enforcement, state police corrections, everything, we took over the Baltimore City Jail. Um, And we, we all feared taking over the Baltimore City Jail. We did it to relieve the city of Baltimore of that fiscal burden, uh, which was ostensibly a state effort. And what we found were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of individuals there for low bails, uh, oftentimes less than $1,000, but they couldn't meet that 10% criteria um, to bail them out, so the place was filled with lower-level offenders, um, with low bails, and it was costing taxpayers enormous sums, millions upon millions, tens of millions of dollars a year. And we sat there and said, well, there's got to be a better way of doing this. Uh, Jim, what you're suggesting is that there's a better
2: way of doing this. There is. There's absolutely a better way of doing it. Uh, and it's called validated risk assessment tools. And, and, you know, we know that that money bail itself is is not the answer because it doesn't really protect community safety. All it does is allow people who can afford to pay to get out of jail to get out of jail. But it keeps the wrong people in jail and perhaps releases the wrong people back into the community. So we we talk a lot about validated assessment tools and using those tools to help define and help decide what's the best course of action for the defendant that you're sitting with at that time. In some cases, in most cases, it's Release with the condition that you come back to court when you're told to come back to court when the court expects you. Do most agencies, and I'm guessing that they don't, do most
0: agencies have a pretrial services core where that person
2: reports in while he or she is awaiting trial? A lot of agencies do. Uh, We've got to kind of look at what agency is. Agency could be one dedicated person what we're talking about here is a system that's built around pretrial and built around around that area of, of the law it could be one person but in most cases it's it is an agency that's larger than one person and and people are reporting in in some cases the court is ordering court order supervision that take place, and they have to do check-ins from now, from time and time again. And, and many times it's just a matter of that agency picking up the phone and reminding somebody that they need to be in court. Those things work. They absolutely work in the field.
0: But there are agencies such as ours where there's a crew of people with um, fairly reasonable caseloads who will put you on GPS if necessary who have a lot of contact with with you if necessary and you have to be drug tested if necessary i mean what we do i think is fairly sophisticated but it works the overwhelming majority of folks come in successfully come in uh for their trial dates uh, all of their trial dates and the overwhelming majority do not commit crimes while under supervision so that's a model that seems to work correct
1: that is correct and and i think the the other thing that uh i'm glad to have the opportunity to to talk about is the importance of having that single agency that can uh that is designed to give the judge the most accurate objective information to help inform their decision to release or detain a defendant at the same time they uh an agency is somebody who uh can make recommendations based on the person's risk and strengths um as to conditions of release and supervision. Just as you said, um, it could be GPS monitoring if somebody is deemed to be at high risk or that we need to know where they are at, at all times. Um, it could, uh, as Jim said, one of the most effective tools that we have in pretrial is court notification. So I'm really wanting to reiterate the importance of having a dedicated pre-trial function agency that can
0: support Uh, The decisions of the court. I want to get back to the constitutionality of what you just said, but ladies and gentlemen, we're halfway through the program on pretrial justice reform in America. Lori Evel, 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 uh, correctional program specialist, took me two times, from the National Institute of Corrections, www.nicic.gov, and Jim Sawyer, Executive Director, National Association of Pretrial Services Agencies, www.napsa.org. You know, getting back, to this issue of constitutionality, when I have conversations with people about the criminal justice system, let's say the juvenile justice system. The juvenile justice system is predicated on th- doing what is in the best interest of the child because it's the juvenile justice system. Uh, the pretrial system is predicated upon release, um, the presumption of release, uh, because people are considered innocent uh, until proven guilty in court. Uh, we, we, people have a hard time understanding uh, what is constitutionality constitutional and what is legal and and what is ethical because as far as they're concerned that that dirty little so and so who happens to be 17 years old should not be given you know there should not be a system that is uh, predicated upon that child's best interest considering they've committed a pretty serious crime but that's how the system is set up that's how the laws are set up that I mean this is what we're talking about is constitutional based upon the United States Constitution and every state constitution that you're innocent until proven guilty, so thus you have a presumption of release. Am I right or wrong?
1: You are right. And what is most interesting is that if you look at court orders from any arraignment court throughout the United States, most of the the orders are release orders but they are a release order with the condition that a person can meet a money amount mm-hmm. and so i think this becomes a, a issue that uh, may be confusing to folks because whenever there's a money amount placed uh, on the release of a person, it is a release order. So the judge has made a order to release. The, the issue comes when people are detained because they cannot make that release condition. And then that's when we get into the issues, as you were mentioning, uh, in the Maryland jail, where all of a sudden, you look in your jail population, you have large numbers of, of people who are detained be- on small uh, dollar amounts that they can't meet or low-level crimes that uh, the person may also be at low risk.
0: Okay, uh, Jim, uh, we're talking about bail. We're talking about monetary bail. We're talking about people who can afford it get out and before their trial and people who can't afford it stay in. Um, so is it that stark? Is it just a matter of being able to afford it? If, if you're a drug dealer and you're moving lots of money and you have cash on hand, you can get out before your trial. But if you're John Schmoe committing a minor crime, you, you can't get out? Is it, is it that cut and
2: dried? I don't know that's that cut and dried. I mean, you can you can make the argument either way, of course. But the, the harm is there for a low-income person and, and usually – usually a person of color as well, and we see a lot of disparity as it comes to money bail. The, the harm comes when that person can't afford that 10% of that $1,000 that you referenced earlier, and now their family's no longer able to stay in their apartment, they can no longer buy groceries because that person can no longer work. Um, and all of that because we're dealing with a low-risk defendant that may or may not have truly committed the crime who is low risk and will likely be uh, attentive to court. Is... What I suggested in the first half of the program, is it true that the
0: monetary discussion that um, both on from the political right and the political left, uh, they're saying that you're spending way too much money uh, on the American correctional system. You're getting results that are not quite powerful. I'm, I'm dealing with a gentleman making that uh, point who will come on and do a podcast this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's saying that uh, the criminal justice system is inefficient. We're locking up the wrong people. We're costing taxpayers to too much money, and we're not getting a big enough bang for the tax-paid dollars. Is it the tax-paid dollars that is driving the discussion on pretrial reform in America?
1: I think that that's what started the conversation. And as people began delving in to this area of the legal case, we began to see practices that did not support constitutional law. It did not support state law and statute, and it did not support the legal and evidence-based practices. And so, although I do believe that it started out as a fiscal management issue, as we have delved deeper into it, as we have looked for interventions to uh, address our jail population, uh, our prison population issues, we've recognized that there is much to be done in the pretrial stage that actually can help reduce harm in our communities, be less intrusive in people's lives, and is the right thing to do. So I think it is both the right thing to do as well as fiscally responsible.
0: But the, um, and this is something after spending 35 years in public relations for the criminal justice system, I'll go back to how I opened the program. Uh, You have these cases that blow up. Uh, either on parole and probation or in pretrial. And I've said for 35 years, there are no guarantees in community supervision. This is not E equals MC squared. This is not two plus two equals four. It's not an exact science. We take additional risk to put people out on community supervision, either before their trial or on probation or as they come out of the prison system. There are no guarantees. But yet, the great majority of the publicity about what it is we do focuses on these cases that go south. Um, how do we deal with that?
1: You know, uh, one of the things that uh, we do very purposely when we work with uh, criminal justice Uh, systems is that they are very connected to their community, that they are purposeful about developing communication strategies so that the community is very aware about the methods in which they go through to make decisions. So how a criminal justice system goes about making their decisions should not be of surprise to the community. So when a case goes wrong, as you say, as, unfortunately, in criminal justice it does, that the... It's impossible not to. It's impossible not to. And, in fact, our risk assessments, as we know, are based on probabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, We know through analysis that that is better than our discretionary decision-making. So it's our way to help um, make our decisions more objective. So I'm saying all that to say that um, as long as we are transparent about the way we make decisions and that they're based in evidence, I think that we are stronger and have more credibility with
0: the community. Jim, risk assessments, how good are they? Um, I've heard some say it's basically a little bit better than flipping a coin. Uh, I've read an article from Politico. Um, co- last week about um, uh, criticizing risk assessment, uh, risk assessment instruments uh, as being nothing better than a coin flip uh, by some critics. So how we're basing all of these decisions upon a, an instrument um, that we within the criminal justice system say that we rely upon, but how good is that instrument?
2: Well, I ri- I, the risk assessment tool needs to be validated locally. It needs to be, you can't just take a risk assessment tool that somebody else is using and say, this is going to work. And what do you mean by validated locally? You're, you're validating the, the, the appearance rate against that, you're the safety rate against that, the community placement against that, and how well your system is working with those defendants and whether or not they have failures to appear or whether or not there are other offenses that are being charged during that time. You can take all of that data. And you can validate that risk tool to make sure that what you're trying to do is appropriate in your agency. If that tool isn't working for you, then you should try to find another tool that's going to help you make that test. It's like Lori was saying. We're transparent. We try to make that tool work. We trust and rely on that tool. We make the recommendation to the court based on the, the, the numbers that come out from that tool.
0: Final five minutes of the program. What am I missing in terms of when we're talking about pretrial justice reform? I keep harking back again to the pretrial services agency of the District of Columbia. The overwhelming majority come back before trial. The overwhelming majority do not commit new crimes. Um, so we know we can do this. So what am I missing in terms of this larger discussion on pretrial reform?
1: Actually, I don't think you're missing anything. I think what uh what we're saying and what we are able to, to reflect back to the field um, is that we have essentially summarized what we believe is the framework in which states and local agencies can follow as they're beginning to find their way through building an effective pretrial justice. The system. The National Institute
0: of Corrections has resources for people who are looking for to improve or to expand their pre- pretrial capacity at www.nicic. Dot gov. And, Jim, I'm assuming that the National Association of Pretrial Services Agencies at www.napsa has also uh, assistance for organizations that are looking to improve the tre- pretrial capacities.
2: Yeah, it's correct. And, and we have a great partnership with NIC in developing some education tools and uh, other knowledge-based information that's out there. And we support that and we help promote that. NIC has also taken the lead to create a lot of evidence-based decision-making sites and doing, and putting some some investments into the field to help us create those pretrial systems that need to be in place. It's not a matter of one place doing it, like D.C. D.C. does it really well. Kentucky st- as a state system that does a very good job in pretrial. It's a matter of other people just wanting to step up to the plate and say... We need to make some changes in how we do things. And we're here for them. They mm-hmm. want to do that. That's, mm-hmm. our, that's our real important part. Lori,
0: right. did I cut you off? Were you in mid-sentence?
1: You no, know, I was just um, going to follow up with Jim. Is that NIC uh, does provide uh, short-term technical assistance where we can come in and help agencies to evaluate where they are mm-hmm. in terms of uh, against the standards and the recommended essential elements. So your listeners, if they are really in any phase of contemplation about reviewing pretrial justice uh, within their um, system statewide or locally, um, please uh, contact us and we can certainly help
0: you with There that. was a report that came out a little while ago talking about rural um, areas, um, and they had much higher rates of pretrial detention than urban areas. Um, and they're talking about a lot of overcrowding in a lot of rural uh, jails that may not exist today in, in urban jails. So Mm -hmm. what's the difference between a city and a small town in terms of how many people that you detain?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting. I can certainly speculate based on my experience of what we see, but this is exactly what a good technical assistance person can do to come in and help evaluate why people come into your jail, how long they're staying and what gets them released. But sort of very generally what happens in rural areas is that they have fewer court supports and so court processing takes a long time. I spoke earlier about having meaningful first appearances, often because they don't have the resources, everybody's not there. so, so cases are set over, and when they're set over, people stay in jail.
0: I've heard, and if you really wanted to be terribly snarky about this, that it's an economic development model for the local uh, rural county. So, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to comment on that, um, but uh, that's that's what I asked the experts uh, why is there such a difference, and that's that was the explanation given to me. Uh, final 30 seconds of the program, who wants it? Where do we go for the next five years, next 10 years? In terms of pre-trial development in the United States, Jim, take it, please. I,
2: I I hope we continue to see the movement and the growth that we have in in nationally. Uh, we're seeing lots of pre-trial programs just coming coming to fore, um, and a lot more attention paid to it. All of that is supported by groups like the National Institute of Corrections and, and I think that we can continue to be successful as we move forward and I hope a lot of other agencies out there embrace what we're trying to
0: do. Fundamental change, that's the whole idea Pretrial Justice Reform is the title of the program. Laurie Evel a Correctional Program Specialist for the National Institute of Corrections www.nicic.gov and Jim Sawyer, Executive Director of National Association of Pretrial Services Agencies www.napsa.org Ladies and gentlemen this is DC Public Safety We appreciate your comments. Heck, we even appreciate your criticisms. And we want everybody to have themselves a very pleasant day.